Medical research has a new tension, and that is, where does the volunteer fit in? Is he a subject, if he's healthy, or is he a patient desiring compensation? You're listening to ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. Maurice Pickard, and joining me today is Dr. Jonathan Kimmelman. Dr. Kimmelman is an assistant professor in Biomedical Ethics Unit at McGill University. Thank you very much for joining us today. It's a pleasure to be here. To begin with, the subject who is healthy and becomes involved in phase one testing, there is a tremendous amount of tension and concern about whether he is being coerced. What are some of the ethical issues that become involved in such a study? Well, there are probably three major concerns when you're talking about healthy volunteer studies. Safety, payment, and value slash validity. As for the safety, these trials are non-therapeutic. They escalate dose levels to a point where patients actually start to show toxicity. So they're in a sense designed for risk. What are the risks? It's hard to say because there really isn't very good data out there on mortality rates. Most of these studies don't actually get published in the medical literature. But there certainly are anecdotal reports and experience with some pretty disturbing outcomes that occasionally, probably rarely happen with these studies, but occasionally occur. One example is a 1996 study at the University of Rochester, the death of Nicole Wan. Another example in 2001 was the death of Ellen Roach at Johns Hopkins University. Neither of these were phase one studies, but they were healthy volunteer studies. And I note that both of these studies occurred at universities, again, where there was some degree of public visibility for these studies. So what are the kinds of serious adverse events that might occur in these studies? The best data that we have out there indicates that serious adverse events are rare, but they do occur somewhere on the order of 0.4 to 3% or so. But again, there are some lurid examples out there. Another example more recently was in 2006, a study at Northwick Park Hospital in England of monoclonal antibody TGN-1412. And in this study, eight patients developed very, very severe immune reactions, some of them suffering irreversible harm. Actually, loss of fingers, I believe, and toes in one, in one particular subject. Correct, as I understand that. Now, in that study, they were applying a drug at levels that were 500 times lower than the level where they started to see toxic effects in non-human primates. So you would have thought that would be a very, very safe study given that they were starting at such a low dose. So occasionally these studies can pack surprises, particularly when you're talking about really novel intervention like TGN-1412, which is targeting a novel biological pathway. What about mild adverse events? How often do these occur? That also is hard to know. We do know that there are a lot of mild adverse events that occur in the placebo group. Many of these studies, phase one studies, are placebo controlled. The mind is very, very susceptible to suggestion. And so when you're given a drug and told to report any kind of adverse events or discomfort, some people will immediately notice things in their bodies that they might not have noticed without the suggestion of uh, having received the drug. But the rate at which volunteers experience adverse events that are mild in these studies based on the current data, which is, again, very limited, is somewhere on the order of 1.5 to 1.7 mild adverse events per subject. So the question is, is it consistent with medicine, with medical professionalism, to inflict harm on one person for the benefit of others? 
In a sense, it is. After all, we do this all the time when we donate blood or when we donate organs in medicine. But the difference here is that we don't normally pay blood donors and we don't pay organ donors, whereas we do pay medical subjects. So this leads really to the second big sort of ethical concern here, which is the issue of payment. So for about three decades now, ethics codes have expressed consistent concern about the ethics of paying subjects. The concern here is really about undue inducement. Respect for persons requires that we be very, very careful about using payments in a way that might compromise the best judgment of individuals. You might, by paying too high an amount, tempt individuals to make very, very short-term decisions that fail to consider the possible long-term consequences. And you also want to make sure that you don't, by paying subjects too much, encourage them to compromise values that they consider to be very important, values like privacy, for example. So the other concern is a concern about justice. If you pay subjects, you are probably going to be selecting for people who need the kind of money, and in particular, the kind of money that these studies pay, which is not, you know, it's not a prince's wages or by any means. And it's a general consensus in the ethics literature that subjects should not bear risks unless they are drawn from communities that are likely to be among the beneficiaries of the research. So if you have poor subjects who are unlikely to have access to these interventions that are developed from these trials, who are likely to be uninsured or underinsured medically, then there's a concern that there's an unfairness in the distribution of risks and benefits for studies like this. And that leads really to a third concern, which is a concern about value and validity. So there's a general consensus that any human study, regardless of how beneficial it is for the, the volunteer or how remunerative it is, is categorically unethical if it doesn't produce reliable information and data. Now, most studies indicate that phase one trial participants are primarily motivated by money, roughly between 55 and 95 percent of volunteers or subjects for these studies are motivated by the payment. And that really introduces a series of validity concerns. Number one, will subjects lie? If their motivation is money rather than promotion of science, there's an incentive to lie about certain things. They might withhold from investigators information about morbidities that could lead to them being excluded from the study. They might have participated in other studies where the drug might interact with another drug that they've received. They might hide pills under their tongue, or they might be indifferent to adherence to the protocol. The second concern is about the personality type that might be drawn to these studies. The question is whether the individuals that are drawn to participate in these studies by the payment are truly representative of the population that might receive the drug. And there's some indication in the literature, although again, this data is not all that extensive, that some of these subjects are, there's a sort of a thrill-seeking tendencies among many subjects. Many of these subjects also have lower levels of anxiety than typical patients. Given the subjective nature of many of the kinds of adverse events that might be detected, psychiatric adverse events being one good example, this also might distort outcome assessment. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Maurice Pickard, and I'm speaking with Dr. Jonathan Kimmelman, and we're talking about the various tensions and stresses and ethical issues that become involved when we have healthy subjects involved in research. You know, you touched on one interesting thing, that the, this research is not published. 
So you have people going through some risk, although relatively small, and the data is not published. And so across the country, there are researchers that might benefit from the risk that other subjects are going through. Couldn't we have some kind of database to deal with this? I've actually talked to people on this show about phase one studies that deal with oncology patients and how the research is often not shared, that there is a proprietary interest because it is funded by pharmaceutical companies. How would you respond to the need to spread this information? I think non-publication is a major concern. As I indicated earlier, there's an absolute requirement that studies have value and validity before they're performed in human beings. Publication is the primary vehicle by which information obtained in a human experiment is disseminated and made valuable in terms of it altering medical practice or even scientific practice. And by not publishing, you are thwarting the primary mechanism of attaining value in these studies. The problem is that if you have an economy of drug development like that which exists in most industrialized democracies, there is a major liability issue for companies in terms of making this information public. Uh, There's a tremendous amount of trade secrecy here. There are competitive disadvantages of revealing too much about a drug. And so you have really an issue of ethics being in tension with an issue of prevailing practice and commercial policy in terms of drug development. And it's very difficult to reconcile those two things. I think there are probably some ways that we might think about trying to resolve those two things. I think if we required publication of all phase one healthy volunteer studies, probably most people in the pharmaceutical and biotech industry would argue that it would be absolutely disastrous in terms of uh, allowing them sufficient protection for developing products. But we might consider allowing, say, a one year or, you know, could be six months, it could be two years. You could sort of debate about the lag, but allowing some kind of a lag between completion of a study and publication. Another option would be uh, mandating that drug companies publish these studies at the point of licensure of the product. At that point, there really shouldn't be any important proprietary information that's buried here in these studies. And there might actually be interesting safety information in these studies. It would certainly allow epidemiologists to get an idea of what levels of risks are associated with these kinds of studies. We've talked mainly about phase one studies with healthy subjects. Is there other problems or tensions or ethical issues when we begin to deal with phase one studies for oncology patients or patients who might be involved in phase one studies who have multiple sclerosis or rheumatoid arthritis, for example? Sure. So I like to divide phase one studies into three broad categories in terms of the kinds of uh, individuals that they enroll. The first category is the healthy volunteer phase one study. And these are the types of studies that are probably the largest volume Any drug has to go through a normal or healthy volunteer study before getting licensure. But there is also a category of drugs that are potentially very risky, for which many people would consider it unethical to expose normal or healthy volunteers to those levels of risk. So in fields like cancer, HIV, many other areas where you're talking about very, very powerful medications, uh, in in the case of cancer, medications that work primarily by their toxicity, These studies tend to enroll oncology patients, and in particular for phase one studies, patients who are treatment refractory, who really don't have standard of care options available to them. There's a third category of patients or phase one studies that comes up 
particularly in specialty areas or in specialty research areas, areas like gene transfer. And these are the stable volunteer studies. Let's take a condition like hemophilia. There's a fairly adequate way of controlling bleeding in hemophiliac patients, provided they haven't developed neutralizing antibodies, and that's to provide recombinant coagulant factor or blood replacement products, clotting replacement products. For some studies that are trying to test a product in phase one studies, a gene transfer study, they might ask hemophilia volunteers to go off their standard of care so that they can measure the outcomes when volunteers receive the gene transfer agent. So I think this is also kind of a category that lodges somewhere between the healthy subject and the treatment refractory subject. There are certain characteristics of these types of volunteers that are shared by healthy as well as by treatment refractory. Dr. Jonathan Kimmelman, I want to thank you for being our guest. And I'm Dr. Maurice Pickard, your host, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. To listen to our on-demand library, visit us at ReachMD.com. If you have comments or suggestions, call us at 888-MD-XM-157. Thank you for listening.